Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. A Cockney accent came in there. I don't even realise I'm doing it. Anyway, resetting as Alan once again. What was the question? A voice can tell its own story. The way a person talks can give you an insight into their personality. Their accent can offer a sense of place. And the cadence of a voice can even give you a glimpse into another person's profession. Just think of the rhythmic way a politician talks, for instance. Impressionists wield variation like a paintbrush, painting images of famous faces in our minds, bringing the colours and the richness of voice to life. Voices are so powerfully personal that even without visual cues, on radio shows like BBC Radio 4's Dead Ringers, audiences are able to recognise a celebrity through audio alone. John Coltshaw is a legend in the world of voice acting, known not only for Dead Ringers, but for Spitting Image, Newsoids and many, many more. John along with Boris Johnson, Tony Blair, Joe Biden, Nick Robinson, Mrs. Jump, Tommy Shack, and countless others are my guests today. Chapter 1. The Foot of Our Stairs We often think of the big names when it comes to impressions. We love to hear from the likes of Trump, Arnie or Elvis, no matter how many times they've been done. But what really stirs our emotions are the voices of the people we know. The ones who play or played a part in our daily lives, good and bad. The subtle voices of the every man and woman shouldn't be underestimated. Because for John, it was exactly those voices that first got him interested in impersonation. That, and an incredible natural talent, of course. I grew up in Ormskirk in Lancashire in the 1970s, surrounded by all kinds of rich salt-of-the-earth characters who were oozing with character and personality and irresistible quirks, the kind that stay in your memory. Mrs Jump, my grandmother's cleaner, you know, she's bought like that. When you're Uber in the carpet, you can follow the patterns on the carpet, the blocks, you see, just follow them round, like the titles to Kodiak, you know, yeah, love, yeah, yeah. And you just can't resist that. And there was another fellow who worked with my dad, he was sort of like uh, Les Dawson, but a slightly higher pitch up, you know. Tommy Shack. Tommy Shack, his name was. And uh, he was one of those, um, sometimes his normal pace would be, uh, but sometimes he's been up for no reason. If he would agitated about something, if someone had gone on, he'd been up for no reason. It'd be like that, you see. And so naturally, I just found that irresistible and uh, like a, 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 some sort of parrot. I used to copy them and just feel a sense of celebration in copying these lovely characters. And people around the dinner table would laugh and it seemed to make for a happy atmosphere. So that was just something that naturally occurred. Add into the mix watching the Mike Yarwood show on a Saturday night. And I think, yeah, that just compounded the fascination because Mike's such a wizard, such a wizard. So that's why I trace the origins. I grew up not a million miles away. I was about an hour's drive east. I was born in Oldham. Mm. And those, those accents... You know, those characters, they're incredibly familiar. I would, I, would always, I would always wonder what the hell my grandmother meant when she said things like, well, I'll go to the foot of our stairs. And, I, and I'd be like, <laughs> I, what, does, what does that even mean? <laughs> it's, they're they're real characters, aren't they? I've always wanted to know, in fact, you know, about uh, 
two or three times a year, I go to Dictionary Corner of Countdown. And I must ask Susie Dent that very question because she will know. She will know. Yes, she will she know. Doesn't, nobody will know. <laughs> it must have. It must have come from somewhere. I, I wonder. Maybe somebody, somebody hears something and they're a bit affronted. Oh, and they've got to walk away to some perceived place of stability, just for take it in. Dear. I remember the foot of the stairs was some sort of place of, like clinging to the edge of the swimming pool. Yeah, because while you're processing. <laughs> The you know. <laughs> well, I, I wondered whether it was a club or a pub or something. It was, a, you know, a place of refuge, perhaps. That's a great idea. It should be. It should be. There should be a place called the foot of our stairs. What a great! That's a great idea. Yeah, we'll set we'll set it up and we'll charge it charge an entry fee where we can all get out of lockdown. Um, shows, iconic shows. You talked about Mike Yarwood. Many comedians have referenced him in the past. I remember reading a Jasper Carrot book when he said, uh, you know, normally you'd go to a gig, you'd come back with a couple of jokes. He said, I went to a Mike Yarwood gig. I came back with eight pages. Um, oh. that's a huge reference point for lots of people. Um, in terms of impressions on, on television and radio, we have a rich history in this country. People will know, uh, or may, will certainly know Dead Ringers. They may also know spitting image not just the reboot but the the original that was a huge hunting ground um for people like you that the voices that we can still hear to this day you know live through us that show for me as a kid really really taught me a lot about satire when it comes to real people john are you often conflicted with politics you think well ideologically i want these guys to win but as a professional impressionist this person has the most amazing accent i would love you know to to do that voices we have a prime minister at the moment that lends himself plays into your camp just perfectly doesn't he well he does almost almost too much really um He's so uh, he's sort of done all of the ridiculous bombast for you uh, at the start. And that almost gobbles up the entire element of surprise. That's good in a way because it's, it, it means that the, the writing and the satire is always more attuned when you have people like that. With Boris and with Trump uh, in recent months, the writing of the sketch was always about what he'd done that week and the crass way that he interprets it or the crass way he tries to cover himself or how his egotism and lack of knowledge got in the way. That was with Trump and with Boris. It's a similar, a similar sort of thing, guys. It's sort of a, a loose grasp and tell throw some Latin at it, uh, go to a biscuit factory and wear a, a, a hairnet and jolly well muck in and that moves the new cycle along for you. Up. It's interesting how they inspire just a little bit more forensic satire once you get into the sketch with characters like that, counterbalanced by by the others, uh, the, the more subtle ones. That gives you the light and shade, yeah. um, and a mix of them. Sometimes you have a few years when you you play a big robust character like a George W. Bush. Other times you you know there's another sort of season of a few years where you're playing the quieter ones. I've taken on Joe Biden in Dead Ringers recently. So we're going to see how, where that leads us. It's very organized and keeping out the way. I, I feel real good about where we are. So they tell their own stories in, in time. But yeah, if, if a Boris is along the way, if, if he's just about to, you know, I remember the time 
when he was probably just about to be, it, it was considered very likely he was about to be voted in prime minister. And you think, right, okay, here we go. Better brace ourselves, stand by. Yeah. So yeah, that's the feeling. It, it's it's fascinating. We, we've talked in the, in the press a lot about satire and and how it's changing based on the fact that it's very difficult to to make up stuff that is as weird and wacky as things that are actually going on in the world. I think as a nation, we've had certainly this is a very personal observation. I've never sat and listened to politicians as much as I have during lockdown because of the press conferences. You know, we'll get typically 45 minutes to an hour most evenings with um, a senior politician and you, and you sit and, and you listen and you observe. And, and one of the things I, you know, in sort of preparation for this conversation, I started to think about if I were to try and voice someone, how would I go about it? And, and, and it's interesting how many things you pick up when you listen to someone and you listen to patterns of speech. One particular thing I've noticed is we have a huge tendency these days to not pronounce the letter G at the end of any word that ends I-N-G. I don't know when that started, yeah. but that's all over the place, isn't it? Yeah, pretty Patel. She does that, you know, we are talking and we are listening and we are thinking and we are perceiving and we are progressing. Pronounce your Gs for heaven's sake. <laughs> it's not vernacular, it's correct. <laughs> um, yes, I wonder, where, I wonder where this evolves from. Maybe it's just a sense of, social media operating now things are done in a more snappy shareable bite-sized chunk sort of way and it's just losing everything up and you know it's all about conversation it's all about relatability perhaps that's just speeded things up a bit and caused that evolution mm. it's fascinating the things that shape and create the evolution of accents and um and words and all of these things it's um it's amazing to trace where that stops and starts. Chapter two, the voices in my head. Do you have an impression in you? Are you attempting it right now? There'll be some of you who may be able to muster up a good Stallone or a decent Ian Paisley. But the truth is, most of us find it hard enough to do a convincing accent, let alone a full-blown impersonation. And what makes voice actors even more impressive is the way they can capture the essence of a person, how they can seamlessly switch from one impression to another, and how effortlessly the comedy spills out. This art form really doesn't get the credit it deserves. Oh, that's very kind of you to uh, very kind of you to say. The whole Ringus team would be uh, would be very uh, grateful to hear that. Uh, it's practice, really. I think it comes from when you've done a fair number of sketch shows, read through a fair number of scenes, and you just get up to match pace, if you like. You get used to it. You're all also, when you're working with the likes of um, Lewis MacLeod, Jan Ravens, Deborah Stevenson, Duncan Wisby, they're so brilliant that it lifts you as well automatically, and you all find a nice pace. And you want the energy of the sketch to achieve certain things. It's got to hit its beats. It's got to hit the punchline. It's got to work like that perfect little bit of machinery. The way Ken Dodd always described a good sketch, a mini three-act play, beginning, middle, surprise, end. I think it's practice. And when, you've, when you're used to impersonating a character and you've done that for a good number of years, they sit in your consciousness and they're just there. And a visual metaphor that I like to use for that, for swapping between the voices quickly, 
it's the 1950s telephone exchange. And somebody would be sitting there with all of the little buttons, pushing them in and taking one out and plugging it in there and plugging it in there. There's all these little Lego bricks at the back of your neck, which are a different character. Like that Frank Bruno is, you know, just goes into the deeper register like that. You know, Tony Blair on the opposite end, you know, much more <laughs> that kind of thing. Professor Brian Cox is slower and speaking in an ethereal sense in this way. So this is how it all knits together. The more practice, it, it speeds up over time. You've talked in the past about different accents, different regional accents. Um, I watched a clip of you talking and it was it was fascinating for me growing up in Oldham and, and Cheshire and going to school in Manchester and thinking about the, the, you know, the Northwest accent. You've talked about the Lancashire accent curling up and the Yorkshire yes. accent sort of going the other way, curling down. That's a that's a fascinating thing. I've I've heard interviews with people like Tom Hanks, who has said things like I'm looking for a for a tick, a way to stand, a, a gesture, a something. Is it the same process for you? You're looking for the sound a particular word makes so that you can that, that can resonate with you and you can then run with it from there. Is it is it a forensic process? Yes, that's very much the starting point. You're looking for a sound, you're looking for a mannerism, you're looking for something where you go, aha, yes, okay, let's fix that first tent pole into the ground there. And you, then you're, you're anchored, then you're, you're set. And then you look for others and you build them around it. And you just add to your collection, you fill up the box, the crystal forms, and you never quite know what you may notice first. It could be something um, very unusual. The post, the post person's here, you see. The push, the, the posters arrived. You know, they're just pushing it through the gate there. I'm just, I'm just signalling to them now. This is the world of Zoom, you see, isn't it? That uh, this is what we do. <laughs> you know, we get used to these things. But I'm digressing. I've said that as Alan Bennett because it seemed appropriate. <laughs> just as I talked about a person at the gate, you know, putting the things through. You know, it's all about getting the job done. A Cockney accent came in there. I don't even realise I'm doing it. Anyway, resetting as Alan once again. And what was the question? Oh yes, where we where we start? Um, yeah, you build you build up your collection with all of this sort of stuff. I'm trying to think of other characters as well. Simon Cowell was an interesting one. Um, uh, for him, there is a very measured sort of delivery. Uh, it follows this undulating pattern. There's the choppy hand gesture, like he's being his own conductor to dictate that pace. And you never quite know what you'll see first, but it's got to be the thing that the audience perhaps don't realise they've noticed. And when they see that done in an impression, a little bit exaggerated, you get the recognition laugh, which leads you to your comedy afterwards. It's fascinating. As writers, we we are taught and trained to think that the, the one thing that human beings are not capable of controlling are their emotions, that instinctive reaction you have to something. So, for example, we are taught that action and or dialogue is simply a physical or verbal manifestation of an emotion that has already occurred. We're also taught that characters are what they do much more than what they say. You get the sense with politicians particularly that the words that are coming out are, are buying time or filling a space and the gestures that accompany them 
I think, tell you more about the character than the words that they say. So, you know, from a character like Boris, for example, he's so much more than the voice. It's a whole package, the hair, the arms, the... I, I just the buffoonery, whatever you want to call it, it's all part of a package. When you do radio, you're stripped of all of that, and it's just the voice. Actors <laughs> who do this dramatically would get hair, makeup, they'd get the whole the whole thing. How much harder do you have to work on radio than if you were on screen? I think um, that is a, a fascinating thing. You're more aware of the theatre of the mind. You're aware that the listener will be imagining and visualizing all of these things. And the writers are so smart that they write all of that sort of stuff in. They come up with phrases or vernacular that's the equivalent of all of that, that finds its way into the script somehow, uh, so that it does manifest in the imagination to the audience when they're, when they're hearing it. I remember times uh, with, with Tony Blair, for example, he was an early Dead Ringers character when it started in, in 2000. He'd been prime minister for three years and was very much in his stride. And that was written in very literally for him in those days. Uh, John Holmes uh, wrote those. And, and Tony Blair would begin his speech, people of Britain. Automatically, you can see him behind his lectern there, very tense and delivering this speech. And then after that phrase, people of Britain, serious forehead, angry pointy finger, full third term nose. <laughs> <laughs> and it was speaking out in a literal sense, all the gesticulations, all those mannerisms. And then with George Bush as well. <laughs> Sometimes you have uh, just a little pause, you know, <laughs> and the laughter, which uh, puts in the mind this, uh, this amusing character who, uh, that look on his face that Jackie Mason described so well, like he, he can't believe he got the job. <laughs> <laughs> you, could, you can see the Stetson, can't you, when you, when you hear the Yes, voice. yes. Writing for radio, the, those visual beats and those sort of senses come in in the writing. They're woven in somehow. When you do those characters visually, and you do have all of those um, visual um, tools at your disposal, that opens up the chance for all of the sight gags, the, the physical mannerisms, the tics, the uh, whatever it might be. And we usually do those in a more understated way. When the visual is there, you don't need to add to it so much, perhaps. But um, yeah, we're, we're lucky to have the great writers we have who are so attuned to these sorts of things and they can bring them through either visually or into the imagination. Chapter three, Becoming Bowie. As audiences, we tend to think impressions are rooted only in satire and comedy, but they're not. Numerous actors have won awards for their dramatic portrayals of famous faces. Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill, Natalie Portman as Jackie Kennedy, and Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury. It's a different skill, of course, as it forces you to delve into every aspect of the person's psyche, less about impersonating them and more about becoming them. John set the comedy and satire aside when he starred as the legend that is David Bowie in The Final Take, Bowie in the Studio, a dramatised account of the production of the singer's last album, Black Star. And he'd like to do more of the same. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's really where I would hope the future would be. 
I, I love doing um, pieces like that. I was very, very proud to portray David Bowie um, in, that, uh, in that drama, The Final Take. It was written by um, a great Bowie fan, a producer called David Morley, lifelong fan. And it was really all about the defiance that Bowie showed at that time. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't sort of um, cowed down by his situation. It brought out a unique form of creativity. He was at the top of his game making that. And he wanted the profoundness of that situation, I think, to just count for something and register with his fans. He really cared how they felt and, and would receive that. And it, doing a, a dramatic piece like that, a comedy sketch is like a bank job. You're aiming for the punchline, you're aiming for the gag to snap in, get the laugh, and then on to the next one. It's very quick. Now, when you're portraying someone in a drama over the full narrative, over that full feature, then the whole piece can breathe. It's a lovely pace. And you're not aiming for a gag, you're aiming for it to ring true. You're aiming for those feelings to land. You're aiming for the, a sense of the truth. So it's understated and you look for different things. You're not about exaggerating the facial tics or any mannerisms. You're looking for other beats. And it's not just about what they do and say and how they look. It's about how they feel and how it makes the audience feel. And it's a, a chance to go a lot deeper, to really ooze into it. And uh, it's, it's something that I, I love to do. I listened to a documentary called Verbatim, all about David Bowie, where he was just recollecting so many memories from the 60s and from his time in Germany and the musicians he'd worked with, the people he trusted, Tony Visconti, Donnie McCaslin, and so on. And just that off stage, off screen, Bowie, where those ideas are flowing and that beautiful manner of his thinking. I, I just loved studying all of that and just trying to find it and put it into that situation of Bowie there in the studio, surrounded by all those people who he trusted and the creativity starts to smolder and arc and build. Yeah, I, I, I adored doing that. There's a real, I mean, there's a responsibility in, in, in everything, but there's a the responsibility in, in satire and, and comedy. I, I would guess you would feel it less than you would portraying in a deeply authentic manner, somebody like Bowie in a, in a dramatic role. That, that's, that's such a gift you know, for an actor, it's such a luxury to be able to, to be allowed the time and space to actually inhabit that character and to try and, um, and bring them to life. You must have felt the weight of that responsibility in that role. Oh, hugely, hugely. Um, I, I felt a, a big responsibility to um, all the fans, all the fans of David Bowie, who are a remarkable group of people. So I did feel a real responsibility to not let them down, really, to end up with something that sat right, rang true, and was was emotive, told the story, just gave that sense of a, a genius in their place of creativity with those who they trusted and how that flows and how that sparks. Yeah, it, the, the, the weight was was really there. But um, I, I, loved, I loved doing that. And the conversations afterwards, one thing that social media allows us to do you can interact with with the fans with the listeners 
which was also very rewarding. It gives you, David Bowie said this himself, that uh, it's a piece of art is never complete until the audience comes in and gives that other perspective. And it felt like that. I could see exactly how that chimed. Mm. Um, the audience comes in and all of this other response is unleashed and it just makes the whole piece four-dimensional, never mind three. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, we've said on the show many times, you know, you're not a writer unless you're writing for a reader and Bowie's making the same point there. It's not art. I, I believe that the value of art is whether it finds an audience, not how big the audience is or how much the audience pays for it, but it must find its audience, whether that's a listener, a reader, someone at a gig, someone at a concert, someone listening to Dead Ringers, you know, on the radio, it has to find its audience. So it's great that the reaction to that was so strong. So are there opportunities for you to do more dramatic roles coming up, John? Yes. Um, recently, I took part in um, the Barnes, Barnes's People which is a streamed theatrical event. Wonderful that theatres can do something to answer back mm. in a time of, of crisis, you know, and streamed performances are one of those. So, um, yeah, along with um, Adrian Scarborough, Gemma Redgrave, Matthew Kelly, we each did a, a monologue as written by Peter Barnes, the playwright, which we first broadcast on Radio 3 about 40 years ago, I think. And in that I played a, a ventriloquist, uh, an old school performer, an old school pro um, who, you know, was a, he's had his demons, he's had his issues in the past, but he's got them under control. And part of his own self-delivered therapy, in a sense, was the voices that he gives to the characters, his ventriloquist dummies, gives them this other life, which then shines back to him and it becomes his own counselling. And it's all sort of driven by his own spontaneity and um, inventiveness. So, yeah, that's uh, Peter Barnes with those monologues. Also, I've been playing uh, Brigadier Alistair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart with Big Finish Productions, wonderful Big Finish Productions. They're such a, a, an amazing creative family, really. They're a wonderful organisation. So, uh, yes, I uh, played the Brigadier there. Uh, one very interesting thing about that, it, it just shows you these wonderful actors, beloved actors, Nicholas Courtney, and the character he created with the Brigadier. Beloved characters. And to sort of study those characters and how those actors created them. It, it's a wonderful insight into um, why these characters last forever and why they're so beloved. And you just have to do it the way they did. Just keep it faithful. The new stories and the new writing and interactions with new characters and companions gives it the freshness. But it's got to have that faithful spine running through it. I think it was the same with David Bowie. I was always a David Bowie fan before doing that piece, but to have the chance to study him in a more forensic way left me more than a fan. I just became smitten by the fellow and his genius as a result of doing that. Uh, but yes, I'd, I'd love to do that more. I'd love to, there's many characters I'd love to portray, really. Les Dawson would be amazing. Professor Colin Pillinger, the great scientist. I've, I've got such a... a curiosity to look into that area now did lockdown take any projects away did you have for example any panto booked for late last year yes there was um it was around about this year i had about uh, three shows left on my tour the great british takeoff which had to be parked um there was going to be a dead ringers tour last summer 
uh, another week at the Barbican Centre, all of those things parked with the entirety of theatre. The theatres, they are sleeping giants at the moment, but their glory shall return. Oh, yes. Uh, Dead Ringers was recorded remotely without an audience, which gave the show a very different feeling. I can imagine. It really, really did. It was, um, it made it perhaps a little, little darker. You could make it understated. In the Today programme, for example, you could have Nick Robinson sort of operating at this level. Oh, right, OK, but that wouldn't work, though, would it, Minister? No. All right, then, leave that with you. It, it was at that level, which you probably couldn't have been quite so understated on the stage. So it made a lovely change. But we will all love it to be back on the Radio Theatre stage once again. We certainly would. As we hopefully, fingers crossed, start to ease out of um, lockdown, will those things that got can, will they go back into the diary at some point? You just push them by a calendar year? Yes, indeed. Hope so. Hope so. I, I, I was going to um, portray Bill Bryson in a stage adaptation of Notes from a Small Island. That was going to be sort of last September, October, November time as well. That was something I was really looking forward to. Hopefully that can manifest at some point in the future as well. I just um, thought, I bet Bill Bryson knows what the foot of our stairs means, because Notes from a Small <laughs> Island is full of yes. stuff like that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I will go to the foot of our stairs. <laughs> <laughs> As your Des Moines accent coming on. <laughs> yes, it's. Uh, I, I, I've been. To, I've been to Des Moines. I loved it. First arrival in Des Moines, and you have Des Moines International Airport, <laughs> which was a magical place. It was like the sort of, um, like a sort of a location of filming you'd see in the Rockford Files or somewhere like that. It was real seventies American. It was. It was amazing. So, yes, I'll be revisiting that, hopefully. Another chance to um, look again at uh, some episodes of the TV adaptation of Notes from a, a Small Island and just Bill Bryson's beautifully shrewd, forensic and sometimes like sometimes assassin-like uh, sarcasm will be a lovely thing to play with. Absolutely. Well, we wish you luck with that and for the rest of your projects. Um, Prime Minister John Colshaw, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Mark, for uh, your perspicacity and uh, very wonderful, very wonderful perspicacious questioning. You would get a lot more out of me than Andrew Marwood. Blah. John Colshaw, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me on this show. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to John Colshaw and countless prime ministers and presidents, etc. for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? A voice can give a fully rounded sense of character, even if you remove all other senses but sound. Imagine your audience could only hear your character. What would they sound like? How would you convey their personality, their emotions, their physical mannerisms? When you're writing comedy, remember that it's beginning, middle, and surprise end. Surprise aha moments are vital. Look for the quirks your audience hasn't realised they've noticed yet. Then hit them with the punchline. You rise to the brilliance of the people you surround yourself with, and the inverse is true as well. So if you want to improve your writing... Make sure you're around the right people. Never be the best in the room. It'll give your work a natural boost 
and you'll learn a lot too. A piece of art is never complete until it finds its audience, even if that audience is just one person at first. Remember not to judge the success of anything you've written until someone else has had the chance to enjoy it. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you have any idea what the foot of our stairs actually means, please get in touch. We're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes release weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.